finally, from so little sleeping and so much reading, his brain dried up, and he went completely out of his mind. This is Dried Up Brain, and I'm Nate. And I'm Andrea. This is a podcast where we read things, and then we talk about them. Andrea is a librarian. She is also my mom, so there's that. I also have one thing I want to brag about. For my Goodreads challenge, I read 237 books in 2020 because basically pandemic. Yeah, well, is that, do you remember what um, your totals from previous years have been? Is this higher? I it's assume it's much is higher. higher. Okay. Yeah, it was like 202 in 2019 mm-hmm. and 237 in 2020. But I listened to a lot more audiobooks than I did in 2019. I wasn't even going to bring that up. I was going to let that people, you know, speculate on what percentage of those was audiobooks. Well, you know what? Audiobooks are books. They're unabridged and you read them with your ears, which sounds like something a librarian would say. Yeah, I I find all of the, like, any argument I have heard for an audiobook not counting is, it makes sense, no sense to me on any level. One... Who, counting is stupid, like, what do you mean counting, counting towards what, like, and then just the arguments that it's not the same as reading, uh, are silly. I guess, like, the closest I get to understanding it is people being like, well, you could just zone out and miss most of the book if you're not paying attention with an audiobook, and it's like, well, okay, (laughs) like, so what? Like, you can... Are you are you gonna like make quiz people when they say read a, they read a regular book to make sure they weren't just like skimming it or whatever? Yeah, I mean it, it's who's the you know police the book police? Well, I mean the Stephen King wrote a whole story about that. <laughs> uh, there's also that comic Rex Libris, which was pretty good. Yeah, that's true. Uh, there are also this is like a total side tangent now, but like you know those like dudes. This, like, entrepreneur, success story, inspiration type guys. They've, they've kind of all coalesced on Instagram at this point. Who will be like, I read a book a day. I'm a businessman and I read a book a day. And then those guys will talk about it and they'll say insane things like, I skip every other sentence. And it's I like, think... we're letting those motherfuckers walk around and say they read books. So, like, at least on an audiobook, every sentence is getting read out to you. Yeah, that's true. But I remember in the early days of Audible, that's what they were marketing. They were marketing, like, executive books so that people who were very busy could listen to books while they were doing other things and be more productive. Well, Audible is around for a lot longer than I think people think. Like, Audible popped on the scene, like, I think... Maybe even pre-dot-com boom? I could be totally wrong about that. But they were, like, early on, their thing was they would sell you, like, a dedicated device. Yes. That was, like, a proprietary MP3 player that just played audiobooks. Yeah, I remember that. That was huge. We had, I remember when I was in library school, we had a demo, and they had these things called Playaways, which were sort of like, it used to be like books were on tape and you would get them from the library and then they Mm -hmm. moved to CDs and then they were on these things called playways and that's exactly what they were. They were like proprietary MP3 players that only played one Mm -hmm. book and you would borrow them from the library and plug your headphones into them. Yeah, and then Audible's thing was like, we'll give you the device and then you can load it with different books over time. And that was absolutely marketed 
at I mean I'm talking like I'm an expert. I just watched a video about old. Uh, there's like a shout out to La- Lazy Game Reviews LGR. He does videos about obsolete technology. He did a video about the Audible player, but it was definitely marketed towards like jet setting Silicon Valley type guys. And like you put this in and like listen to a book on the plane or whatever, and then you get off the plane and now you know all about. I don't know, probably something Steve Wozniak wrote. I used to love audiobooks when, especially when they were on tape, because they would tell you like, "End of tape, please flip tape or please replace tape." And then when they went to digital. Some of the things from like Audible and from the library were just digitized tape. That's my favorite. And when they you would find... say like end of disc six. <laughs> yeah, that's like I feel immense joy when I load up an audiobook of like from the library or something of like usually an old sci-fi novel, and it starts with "This is Blackstone Audio." <laughs> That, that that that's the best. I love that because that that all always have the like end of side one, turn over two. Before like <laughs> Game of Thrones, there was only two jobs for those actors: like Shakespeare plays and recording audiobooks. Yeah, yeah, totally. Uh, okay, I have no idea how many books I read this year. Is significantly less than that. Um, how many have you started? Oh, like a billion. <laughs> I mean, just like phone the the. the the books app on my phone is just a wasteland of like 1%, 2%, 10% <laughs> books. Just hundreds of them. One day you're going to have a dream where you're stuck in there and it's going to be like the page master. They're going to be like chasing you. <laughs> and they're like, why didn't you finish me, Nate? <laughs> I had a twist ending. To be fair, though, I probably read like a thousand issues of comics this year. <laughs> I think that counts, too. Yeah, I think that counts, too. Uh but yeah, so one, we're going to focus in on one of the, what did you say, 237 yes. books that you read this year, and we're going to talk about The Pattern Master. Is that what this is called? Is it called The Pattern Master or The Patternist? It's called The Pattern Master, and the series is The Patternist. Yeah, okay. I always get those confused. We're going to talk about The Pattern Master by Octavia Butler, which is officially at this point book four in the Patternist cycle. But is the first one chronologically published. I think it's also her first novel. Yeah, it was published in 1976. So it's right in that, like, sweet spot of, like, really weird 60s and 70s sci-fi. This is very 70s sci-fi. Yeah, I loved it. Let's talk a little bit about Octavia E. Butler. She's kind of like a groundbreaking author for many reasons. She was born in 1947, and she died in 2006, so she died fairly recently. She was an African-American author, and what really made her unique was her focus on writing with sci-fi fiction, which at the time, there really wasn't a strong African-American presence. Yeah, she, I mean, we talked about Samuel R. Delaney before, and she's kind of the, she's sort of in that same like movement i would say they're both sort of like new wave sci-fi writers and they're bringing this sort of different perspective and then she is also kind of shares space with that sort of um 70 60s and 70s african-american literature movement where you might put like a tony morrison like her kindred is kind of like a perfect sort of halfway point between those two spaces and culture well we talked a lot about the evolution of sci-fi from being sort of 
a genre to being more integrated into the, you know, American literary movements. She has a very literary style. Mm-hmm. You know, she's a very skilled writer, very technical. She has a strong use of words. I mean, it's not overly flowery. It's not overly, like, filled with, like, fake made-up names for things, that kind of stuff that weighs down science fiction. Like, it's not heavy in, like, the world building. So it kind of, it reads, she reminds me a lot of, like, Ursula Le Guin. This especially, yeah, yeah. I, I would say there's a lot of, like, similarity. If you like one of them, you will probably like the other one. Yeah, she does the thing that I tend to do a lot when I write sci-fi and fantasy, which is to give the sci-fi concepts like plain English names. Mm-hmm. Like the 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 connecting force of all the psychics in this is just called the pattern. It's not called like it doesn't get like a made up invented word, which I always find to be easier to swallow, and it's where my t- mind tends to go, and it might be directly influenced by her because I first the first thing i read by her was kindred which for a long time up until the 80s was the only thing she had written that wasn't in this patternist cycle and kindred for people who don't know is a story about a woman in the 70s i think it was published in 1979 uh who sort of travels back and forth between her current day in california and then slavery times in the south and it's a really harrowing tale about you know like history and like the things that people had to do to survive in the past and you know race and slavery and all that and i ended up reading that like right before she died which was a weird experience yeah i mean she died pretty young i guess she was only 56 and she had some kind of um either like a stroke it was a stroke i believe yeah and she was suffering she i know she had high blood pressure they said and she was suffering from some medical issues and she collapsed in her home, and at one point they thought she had had a stroke or whatever. They weren't quite clear on what happened, and she passed away. But she was really sort of, I guess a lot of writers are hitting their stride, getting their peak in their 50s, and she was right oh, for there. Sure. I mean, I, she has, I know she has at least one unfinished novel, because she, cause her big sort of like categories of work, there's the pattern of cycle, which is, Four books canonically with a fifth one that she's disowned. And then there's the Xenogenesis. I think that's a trilogy. That might be four books too, though. And then there's uh, Parable of the Sower and Parable of the Talents. And she was working on a third parable book. I believe it was called Parable of the Trickster. Uh, and I don't... That's not been published. So I don't know how far she got into the process of writing that before she passed away. I know that I, I'd have to look it up. I think I printed it out. She had donated, she had bequeathed her papers to a university actually in Pennsylvania. She wasn't from Pennsylvania, she was from California, Mm -hmm. but still another reason to really care about her. She got her start at a writer, a sci-fi writer's workshop that was in Pennsylvania. The the Clarion Workshop, right? right? That's kind of a legendary, uh, legendary writer's workshop. There's a lots of people, Kim Stanley Robinson, for some reason the first one I think of. There are definitely others, but there's lots of very notable sci-fi writers either attended the workshop or were, like, instructors there. I think Jeff Vandermeer was an instructor there at some point. Yeah, she, I guess, she submitted a short story to one of the science fiction magazines, and Harlan Ellison, he read it, and he suggested that she go there. 
And she went to the workshop and she met Samuel R. Delaney there. Mm-hmm. And they had a lifelong friendship. And she continued up until the year before her death to go to the Clarion workshop and to teach there and to take courses there. So she has like a Pennsylvania connection. But I thought it was interesting about her is that she seemed like a really cool woman. She loved libraries. She was an advocate for supporting libraries. She loved reading. She loved writing. She was very focused on sci-fi, which was very unique for an African-American woman. And she had dyslexia. So it was even harder for her to get to the point where she was comfortable reading and writing. And she really focused a lot on the technical skill of writing, which I think is important because it showed that she valued not only her own work, but she valued the genre. She saw it as an important genre and wanted to promote and encourage people to read and write science fiction, which I think is really nice. Oh, and she's also a Hugo and Nebula Award winner, multiple Hugo and Nebula Award winners. She won a bunch of literary awards as well. So she's kind of like a highly prized, acclaimed writer. And I think she like, like we talk about like the themes of what she's, oh, like what each writer, their major overall canonical themes But I thought you would find this really interesting. I found this when I was reading about her. And one of the things that she said was that humanity was flawed, but because of hierarchical thinking. Mm -hmm. And she said things like this sort of pecking order and class bullyism leads to things like racism, sexism, and classism, which I think is a very interesting take on like society and the roles of gender and women and you know, different societal norms that people put on there and they use that as a way to sort of classify people and to, like, suppress or, you know. Yeah, and I think that gets back to also, like, the comparison you were drawing to Le Guin. I think they've got similar worldviews. I think ultimately Butler, in a weird way, is more idealistic than Le Guin. Yeah, I think so. And I think also, I mean, a lot of her work, even though she herself had dealt with, um, especially in the 60s and the 70s, being a female writer, dealt with um, sexism and racism. And I think she kind of, she dealt with those things and she was aware of those things and she was, was outspoken about them, but she was also positive and hopeful and she believed that people could change and she did her part to help change things. And I think that's admirable. Yeah, I also wanted to go second back to like her... Um accolades and whatnot she's also the first sci-fi writer to get a macarthur fellowship definitely and i think that's one of the things that sort of shows her talent as a writer Mm -hmm. but also i think i'm for all the young writers and all the fans of science fiction she worked for a long time before she was published Mm -hmm. and she talked openly about dealing with rejection and dealing with the sort of the work that she had to do just to get published. And I think that's sort of admirable because she's very honest and open about her life, which I think was kind of, I guess that's an inspiration to other people who may be struggling to get published or struggling with writer's block or depression or learning disabilities that might other people might think might stop them from achieving their dream of being a writer. Mm-hmm. We talked about this with the Goosebumps where yeah, yeah. They, you know, they were encouraging young writers. She also encouraged young writers, which I think is important, mm-hmm. especially like in the male-dominated science fiction. Well, it's also- like if you think of who was being published in the 60s and the 70s, you know, it was mostly 
the sort of iconic men of like yeah, sci-fi. Dudes. Yeah, white well, we dudes. talked about that before when we did our episode on Ursula. Le- I think it was when we did our, our episode on Ursula Le Guin when we discussed the word for world is forest. We talked about the like the the big three, and it's like three white guys, and it's like yeah. But I think, I mean, she wrote a lot about humans and their flaws. She wrote about race. She wrote about gender. Mm-hmm. She wrote about sexuality. I, I think we talked about this off the podcast, but I think it's very brave of her to have a bisexual character in a novel in the early 1970s. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, she kind of was an influence to a lot of writers, not just women of color or female writers. I mean, I think of, like, N.K. Jemison winning three consecutive mm-hmm. Hugo Awards. If it wasn't for a writer like Octavia Butler, you know, would the door have been opened? Would she would have been harder for her to push? It was hard enough for her to push through that door. Yeah. In the two thousands, but what would have been like if there wasn't someone else who was pushing that door to begin with? For sure, for sure. So, do you want to talk about the patternist? So yeah. So uh, two things I want to say before we get into actually talking. One, I guess. We should probably do, like, a trigger warning. There's a fair amount of, like, abuse in this. Yeah. This is very much a story that's about power dynamics and the ways that they can be abused. It's not, like, it's not, like, misery porn or anything like that. It's not, like, totally, like, just, like, aggressively horrific. But there is some kind of bleak stuff that happens. The other thing I wanted to say is, like, this is, you know... I've sort of given this suggestion before with other sci-fi and, like, fantasy things we've covered. But the way this works is it really deliberately and sort of gracefully dulls out information about the world that and the history of this world. You're not really front-loaded with exposition. So a lot of the, like, enjoyment, I think, of this novel is slowly piecing together exactly what things are going on and how this world works and how the characters operate in it. And I think we're just going to, like, immediately sort of talk about the situation to give context. And if you're interested in having that experience of sort of piecing together this world that she's created, then I would suggest to like, pause, put this on hold, and go read it and come back after you've done that. But otherwise, like, we'll, we're just going to move ahead and talk about it. This is, it's a strange sort of spoiler warning. Like, I don't give spoiler warnings for anything, except that it's, like, for this specific, like, experience, I'm like... You know, it's going to be your experience with the novel is going to be very different if you already know how the world works when you start reading it. But I think what makes this really interesting and fun to read, because it's not a really long novel no. and you really got to get it up to speed quickly, like you said, that's what it is. So once you figure it out and once as you're reading it, that enriches the enjoyment of this story. You should do a good job of setting up the stakes pretty efficiently. And then slow rolling you on the specifics of the world. But so what this is essentially... So like I said, it's part of this series she has, or this cycle, called the Patternist Cycle, that focuses on the psychics called Patternists. It's set in the future. Uh, colonists from space had at some point in the distant past... Or in the distant past of the setting, So, but in the future from us, returned to Earth carrying this disease or parasite she kind of goes back she says disease organism is a term that she uses more than once to describe this infection but it infects people 
and it makes normal or you know reg makes standard humans sick but then their offspring are born as this kind of mutant splinter race called clayarchs that are sort of stronger and tougher and slightly more animalistic than than a baseline human and then to counteract this these psychics rose up under the direction of a, car- a guy called the Pattern Master. And the pattern is, like, it's kind of like the force. It's like a hive. Yeah. A collective, like, so every psych- awareness. They're psychics, and every psychic can connect to another psychic. And when psychics are linked, they're more powerful because they're sharing strength. But then everyone is always all linked with this one guy who's the Pattern Master. And that network that permeates the all of the patternists is the pattern and the pattern master is charged with using that to protect everyone from the clay arcs and it leads to this sort of rebirth of feudalism the pattern master becomes a king in like a very sort of um antiquity kind of like lord protector sort of sense where it's like the king is the guy who promises to protect everyone and then everyone else is under him so you have this hierarchy where it's the Pattern Master, and then under the Pattern Master there are powerful Patternists who control houses, who are House Masters. And then they have sort of unlanded Psychics, or Patternists under them, who are called Outsiders. And then at the bottom of this caste system are the Mutes, who are what we would think of as being normal humans, humans who don't have Psychic abilities. But they're not Mutes. Like, they can, they they, can yeah. speak and hear... They're mutes because they're they have no psychic powers. Yes, exactly. And so our protagonist is this guy named T Ray. Terre? How did how did you pronounce I his name? I pronounced it T Ray because T E R A Y. Yeah, it's yeah. So T Ray is a young man. I think he's supposed to be like nineteen or something like that. Right. He's fresh out of boarding school. Yeah, and he leaves school with this woman who's about, who's going to be his wife or is his wife. Named Ira, and his plan when he leaves school is to become an apprentice to a housemaster named Joachim, and then eventually, after he's learned enough, leave and start his own house. And Ira will be his lead wife. There's like a polygamy thing going on with the patternists in this. But on their way back to Joachim's house, they're waylaid by a visit to this other housemaster named. Currency? How did you say That's his name? That's how I said it, currency. 99% chance that we're both wrong, because we're terrible at pronouncing names. Yeah, yeah. Take every, every pronunciation we come up with is a grain of salt. <laughs> but so currency is super powerful, and he has a relationship with Joachim, and he wants him to come to his house because he wants to make a trade with him because he's got this artist working for him who makes this like psychic art where... He takes, like, an object, a crafted object, and, like, can put memories into it. Which is an interesting concept that only really comes up in the very beginning of the story. But it turns out that Currency is, like, a real bastard. He's, he is... He's powerful, but he's powerful because he's aggressive and ruthless. Yeah, and manipulative. But in, like, a very... He's manipulative in a very, like, in an aggressive way, which is, like, an interesting sort of thing. He's a very compelling villain. And so, like, the patternists have this thing where they don't really raise their children, which we find out later in the novel is because, like, 
their children are too close to their parents in the pattern and it creates this like feedback thing and can be potentially disastrous. So parents send away kids. The story opens with this prologue uh, where the pattern master is attacked by the clayarchs. And in the beginning of that prologue, he's having a conversation with his lead wife who wants to send, who wants to go check on her kids that she sent away to school. And I think the implication is that the kids that she wants to check on are Quarency and T-Ray because we find out that Quarency is T-Ray's brother. They're both sons of the Powder Master and coincidentally both have the same mother, which is even rarer. And Quarency is like immediately intrigued by T-Ray and ends up manipulating Joachim into giving up T-Ray as his apprentice, even though he's just acquired him, and giving him over to Quarency to serve as an outsider in his house. He does this because he has... Joachim had previously been, like, his apprentice. And before he had least released him, he had put, like, hypnotic suggestions and controls in his brain. And so he forces him to give up T-Ray. So T-Ray becomes an outsider, which means he has to give up his wife. Uh, and he has to serve Quarency. And what we find out is that Quarency's whole thing is, like, the Pattern Master is sick. He has the Clearchus disease. And he's dying. And he's weaker, and the country, the land has become more dangerous because he's weaker. And it's kind of like this Fisher King thing going on here. And Corency is, like, so powerful and arrogant, and he believes that he is going to get the pattern. But he sees T-Ray as being a threat to that because he's so much, he sees him as being so much like him, and he's his brother from the same mother. I think what, yeah, and also what you have going here, other than this sibling rivalry, is that you have... T-Ray, who is a naturally very talented, highly functioning patternist, mm-hmm. but he's untrained. And he's less and he ambitious has, than Corinth. Right, and he has less experience, but he's interested in learning more, which is why he wants to do the apprenticeship, is because he wants to learn how to be a really good patternist so he can have his own house. Yeah. But Corinth is established, mm-hmm. and he has his own house, and his he has no desire to learn more about the pattern and how it works, but what he rather what he wants to do is assemble this sort of house based army that will help him fight his way to be the new pattern master. Yeah, so we get this idea it was introduced early on where it's like people are close in the pattern; they're like alike and compatible, and they can work together. And we find out that we find out that Joachim assembles his house where he just selects people that are close to him in the pattern and he sort of builds this almost like a commune yeah and they're all individually weaker than the people in Quarency's house but together are probably stronger and Quarency at one point even cops to that he was like if we went to like war i would probably lose but Quarency just picks the strongest people and he kind of goes out of his way to pick people that aren't close to him and each other in the pattern because he, despite wanting to control this network that connects everyone, he's this very arrogant individualist. And that, like, is, like, his fatal flaw that rides through the whole novel is this, like, he he's just will not, at no point will he, like, subvert his ego for the greater good or even for his own good. Well, I think we see the downfall of that later on in the story where there's a fight and... T-Ray is able to sort of connect himself to a to another character, Amber, which we meet later on, mm-hmm. and they can work together. But when Currency has nine other patternists with him, 
he can't get them to work together to fight the clay arcs that are attacking yeah, him. Yeah, we'll get to that. That's the end of the novel. I think the end, the, the sort of last act is really well structured in terms of, like, character and things like that. But so he, like, we get in the next few chapters is just, like... A sibling struggle. Well, yeah, and just T-Ray suffering a lot. Because it's how it's like, he is... His, he has his dreams ripped away from him on the day that he was supposed to start the path to get those dreams. He is forced to work for this guy that he hates and is scared of. And it's his brother. And it's his brother. He has his wife taken away from him. And he has this fear that, like, you know, she, she he tells her to, like, just, you know, play the part. Act the role. Like, you have to be Clarence's wife now. But, like, I'm going to get us out of here. And he's he has this anxiety for, like, three chapters that, like, what if she actually starts liking him? And, spoiler alert, that is what happens. And it leads to a really heartbreaking scene around the middle of the story. Well, that's one of the things that we're, like, the sort of relationships that Corency either forces people to have or he tears people apart. And that's one of the things that he does. Ira is also really ambitious herself. And I think mm. she is talented enough at some point that she could have her own house. So she aligns herself with Quarancy because he currently has the power at the time. Yeah, but then there's all these scenes of, of T-Ray watching them from a distance and like seeing her like smiling and like laughing at things that Quarancy is saying. And it like drives him crazy. And so like in, a, in an effort to like humiliate him, Quarancy puts him in charge of the mutes. And... He has this moment where he does this very currency like thing where he forces the sort of curmudgeonly mute herd, that's the, the outsider who's in charge of the mutes, to, like, give over his memories to him. Not like, he's not, like, stealing his memories, like, the guy still has his memories. But he reads this guy's mind against his will, and it's the most in the novel that he ever acts like currency, but then the lesson that he learns from it, from seeing how this guy handles the mutes and learning how to you know, interact with these people who are lower than him on the totem pole, it's, that is, like, one of the biggest things that teaches, biggest things that teaches him to not act like currency. Yeah, because it turns out that, I mean, because of this poor management, the mutes that live in the household, there is, that's where the history of violence comes from. There's lots of spousal abuse, there's just... Well, so, yeah, so we find out that it's, like, hard for patternists to get away with attack abusing another patternist because like they can project their thoughts out to anyone but the mutes don't have any way to communicate and the patternists don't value verbal communication so at one point a, a mute comes to t-ray it's so weird to be talking about these people that are like normal humans and calling them mutes i, th I think it's one of the interesting tricks that the novel does where it kind of makes you participant in the dehumanization in a way that is like kind of fucked up and like asks a question of you but this woman comes to him and, like, reveals that she's being abused by one of Quarancy's outsiders. And then he, uh, T-Ray finds out that there's, like, a hist like a pattern of this, pun not intended, throughout the house. That Quarancy just kind of lets his people, like, run wild because all he's really interested in is the strength. And he, he especially doesn't really value these mutes as people. And which forces T-Ray to take this, like, big stand and for the first time put himself in danger since he's gotten there to be like, hey, if this happens again, like, I'm going to fuck things up. Like, the previous mute herd was weak. I'm strong. Like, Quarancy put me here to embarrass me. 
but he's it's made he's made this mistake of putting someone who's strong enough to stand up to people in this situation and then that firmly positions him as like a literal outsider in the house like now everybody hates him well, I think what he starts to project something that a lot of the patternists don't see as an important emotion, which is empathy. Yeah. And I think, so then he meets Amber, who is another patternist, but her specialty is healing. Yeah. And she spends a lot of time with the mutes healing them from the abuses that they're suffering from other patternists and outsiders. And then she opens his eyes to what's going on. Yeah. And I think she also is, she's the first character that he meets that actually tries to educate him about what, what happens in the pattern and what happens to the people who are involved in it. You know, she teaches them some healing techniques. She teaches them, she shows him more of what's happening with the, how the mutes are being treated and the abuses that they're suffering from. And then he realizes that she's a very powerful patternist, but for some reason she's also trapped in yeah. this community with currency. Yeah, she also has the ambition of, of starting her own house. And at first, Tira is like intimidated by her because they're very close in the pattern, which means she's very much like him. And she's, you know, very assertive and ambitious. And it's like in contrast to Ira, who was was ambitious and had strength, but she was like a much more submissive character. She followed him, and then she falls into this. Um, I keep saying the word pattern. <laughs> she falls into this pattern of following currency, whereas Amber is like a more of a rebel. We also find out her backstory later, and it's pretty sad. Yeah, and I think, but the thing I think that is shocking to Tiri at this point is that even though because they're close in the pattern, they're also equals. And they become almost like partners. They start to have a relationship together. And then they do this thing, I guess, which is supposed to be very special, is they can link themselves or they they make a conscious effort to open their minds, to share thoughts. And she starts to teach him things. Like I said, she talks, teaches him about healing. And then later on in the book, she shows him a better way to dispatch the clay arcs. And he realizes the value of combining minds to build a stronger sort of mental band Mm -hmm. that they can that like can project their powers and make them stronger unify them make them better soldiers or whatever they need to be at that time yeah well the big like magic trick of the book is that like t-ray's journey as harrowing as it is ends up being exactly what he needed to learn to learn how to be the pattern master and why the pattern is important and also to illustrate why Quarency's method would have made him a terrible pattern master. Like, there's a scenario in this store novel where it's like, if Quarency ends up being the pattern master, it probably means the end of the human race. Yeah. Because he's just he's just so wrong for the position. And yeah, we get this thing where it's like, the the you talked about it, like, the patternists don't really value empathy. They're constantly connected and connected to each other. But because they've created this hierarchy, like you were talking about with, uh, you know, her Octavia Butler's sort of themes that she likes to explore, it means that, like, they're, like, the the power of the hierarchy, in a sense, supersedes the power of the pattern. And they end up being more, you know, like, it, it fights what should be, like, a natural sort of empathy that they have. 
And with Amber, we learned that there's this, like, this healing power that they can have, which seems like the most powerful thing they can do, where she's, like, literally, like, manipulating tendons and nerves and the human body and, like, knitting people back together. But it's, like, weirdly marginalized compared to what is probably an ultimately much less useful skill of, like, I'll use my brain to beat you up. Yes. But that brain fight is very dramatic at the very Yeah, end. we get a couple brain fights that are, are pretty dramatic. There's a the, the early one uh, where right before he gets like sold to Corency, and then there's the big climactic end one. I think the most disturbing part of the book involves Amber, where she gets shot in her hand, mm-hmm. and then she just uses... The nutrients in her hand reabsorbs her hand into her body to use the nutrients to heal herself to grow a new hand. Yeah, and her hand falls off and it's like all withered. And she mentions like, ah, you know, in a few weeks I'll have a new hand. Which like means that there's going to be like a part where she's got like a weird baby hand. (laughs) uh, Which they don't... I was thinking about that. I was like, maybe they wear like... Would they wear like a big glove that would cover the baby hand? Or would she just have her baby (laughs) hand out there? I think she just have her baby. She seems like she's just herself, and she doesn't care who knows it. She's like a seventies feminist, like right there. Yeah, so she, she's like, look at my baby hand. I grew this. Yeah, she's the bisexual character. So we like, find out with like her backstory that she was, I mean, at school was basically like abused by a teacher that she had rejected the like advances of. And there's this like in her, we get this illustration of like these dangers of these power dynamics, the kind of gross ways that these. Uh, official power roles can like sort of like smoosh up uncomfortably with like sex and romance and she ends up becoming like an outcast who is eventually saved by another a housemaster who is a woman who she starts a relationship with who then shares like her mind with her in the same way that uh, T-Ray forced the mute herd to so she has this like jump start of like skill but she ends up like leaving this woman because it's she doesn't want to just become a copy of her like she suddenly has like 40 years of memories that she didn't earn so she kind of has to go and like walk about to learn her own stuff to sort of like rebuild her identity as an individual person it's all a really interesting concept i think the concept of the individual and <clears throat> excuse me the concept of the individual and this idea of like the private nature of your thoughts. I think mm-hmm. the, ex- the way she explores that sort of is very interesting because in the pattern, to be in the pattern, you have to be open and mm-hmm. your thoughts are public domain. Like the community can access what you know and what you feel. And to have sort of private thoughts or have private feelings, it's considered like inappropriate. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, no, it's like, I don't know. It goes back and forth. It's like some people, like, that privacy is paramount. And you have someone like Quarency who refuses to link with people even when it would be beneficial. Yeah, and then you have this, like, Terry is, like, constantly having these, like, anxiety attacks about trying to hide his thoughts and his ambitions from people and, like, not wanting someone, the wrong person to find out that he's plotting against Quarency and then that person tells Quarency... And it's becomes like this thing where it, it almost sort of predicts social media where it's like I've been thinking a lot about this idea that like social media is essentially a extension of the surveillance state. And it sort of turns every person into like a security camera. And that's like literally true here. What's like 
every potential person he meets is could just be like by their very nature just wearing a wire, you know, just be, not even intentionally. But I think that's true because when the the way that Quarantine dominates his brother is that he enters his mind whenever he wants. Yeah. And there's lots of sort of scenes, especially like in the beginning when they're having these sort of conflicts, where Quarantine is pushing further and further into T-Ray's mind. And I think that's when he meets Amber, who has this sort of other kind of flip about like the positive side of the pattern where, you know, she asks, can I, you know, can we link? Mm. Or when they link, they link in a way that benefits both of them. Yeah. You know, they're they're safer when they're linked. They have more power when they're linked together. But to currency, like, that's sort of like an invasion of his mind, his personal space, where he pushes. Like, he keeps pushing into areas that he knows he's not supposed to be in. Yeah. And I think, he, I mean, other than sort of emasculating him by taking his wife as his own wife, and then putting him in, like, a subordinate position that's beneath his, like, skill level, and then mocking him, like, and there's all this kind of, like, he takes all these jabs and everything at him all the time, and there's this sort of, like, sibling rivalry that's, like, taken to the next level. It's almost like, it's like the Borgias, almost, because yeah. it's, like, they're the ruling class, and the, within the ruling class, there's so many high-level conflicts. Yeah, yeah. Well, there's this thing with Cornsey where it's like, he's willing to just have T-Ray be, like, subservient to him. But he also makes it clear where it's like, if you want to pop off and have me kill you, like, that's fine with me. I get what I want either way. But he offers this, like, bargain to T-Ray in the very beginning where he's like, you know, all you want is to have a house or whatever. Like, you can have that. I'll let you go. I'll let you do whatever you want. Just let me put these controls in your brain that will keep you from standing in my way. Maybe you would never even stand in my way, and it basically wouldn't matter that you have the controls. And it's this thing where it's like, he he's like, you can have what you want, but you can't have your freedom. Like, it's one or the other. He's really afraid of his brother. He, I mean, he immediately sets up, he hasn't seen his brother in his whole entire life, and his immediate reaction to him is, I got to set these ground rules so that you don't challenge me because I want to be the pattern master. Mm-hmm. And I and since we're both brothers, there's this competition. So you won't have to agree that you don't want to be the pattern master. You have to put up with these controls I'm going to put in your brain so you can't challenge me. And then I'm going to fuck with you every minute of the day until I become the pattern master. Yeah, but he gives him... he. The thing is, like, he gives him this bargain just after he's seen him exert the controls over Joachim. And that, like, completely shreds his entire perception of that guy, where he becomes, like, this sort of pathetic figure almost instantaneously. And it's, like, that's maybe the one time in, like, years where those controls have been exerted, but that's enough to convince T-Ray that he would rather die than submit to currency in this way. And he gives him, like, a year. He's like, you can have, like, a year. Or or maybe it was, like, however long Rayal, that's a pattern master has left to live to decide whether or not you want me to put these controls in. Um, and so, which gives him time to sort of like plan what he's going to do next. But there's this sort of arc with T-Ray throughout the story where like his growth as a character com- really comes when his conflict with currency becomes less about his personal freedom and more about the well-being of everyone else. 
Yeah, I guess that's what happens. At some point, he decides he's had enough, and he and Amber are now like in a committed relationship, well, and they decide they're going to leave. They're going to go to a town called Forsyth. Well, so what happens before this is Joachim returns, and he tries to make a play to help T-Ray, and it really does not work. And he brings like one of the Pattern Master's like, outsiders, one of his like seconds, to to try and like litigate this case that currency didn't have any right to buy t-ray and the sale was like illegal and it ends up backfiring in his face where it's like you know currency is such a really good villain because he's like the kind of bad guy that where he never actually he never lies at any point like he he does everything like on the level and it's just but it's like he's so ruthless that it just makes him like totally despicable uh but he basically like turns it back on joachim and because he was like exerting the controls like it's essentially like it's like joachim willingly sell seemingly willingly sells t-ray so like that makes it legal and then through amber the outsider or the pattern master's like assistant or whatever sends this message to t-ray that's like if you can get to Forsyth, which I guess is the capital, then there will be protection for you there. But, like, you you have to get there on your own. I can't help you get there. And so he comes up with Amber with this plan where they're both going to leave, because she she wants to leave Quarancy, and he's, like, keeps trying to make these plays to get her to become one of his wives, and she doesn't want to give up her freedom in the same way he doesn't. So they start to come up with this plan where they'll sort of escape in secret and head to Forsyth and get sanctuary there and t-ray has this sort of thing where he uh, agonizes over whether or not he should ask ira because it's like it's a huge risk and he's already sort of fucked things up for her before and he's not sure if he wants to make her once if it's right for him to ask her to take this risk and then he realizes that like he made this promise before that like he was going to get them out of there so like he has to at least ask her and that's the really heartbreaking scene where she's like I don't want to go with you. I want to be with Quarantine. Like, he's not as bad as you think he is. And, like, I've sort of fallen for him. And it's, like, at that moment... Because, like, his relationship with Amber is, like, not totally, like, romantic or anything yet. And she's pretty guarded. And he's pretty guarded. So it's, like, in that moment, he has, like, nothing. Like, it's, like, well, I might as well just, like, leave and take my chances with the Clerks. Because, like, it really doesn't matter if I die here or out there. But Amber decides to go with him. Yeah. And they do start to form sort of a relationship, but it's more of a relationship of equals. Like, they do have a romantic involvement, but they travel almost as equals. They're linked together to protect themselves together. And she starts to teach him. And one of the things that's really important in this story is he starts to realize that he has healing he has basic healing skills mm-hmm. and she sort of awakens his sort of compassion and his desire to learn more about healing and helping people yeah which is important she also teaches him a more efficient way to dispatch the clay arcs which he never learned at school because it's also a way that you can kill a patternist yeah so the way that you're the the standard way to kill the clay arcs, which is very inefficient, is to basically like use your brain to shoot a psychic gun at them. Uh, and then what she says is to sort of 
combine the method that you use to scan with the healing techniques and to essentially just sweep like a bioelectric death field across them and shut down their organs and like and fry their brains it's more efficient and it's actually more humane yeah yeah because we find out later we see currency kill the clayarchs and he makes them suffer also important before this actually before they leave there's this sort of small scene where well first there's this moment where when they're showing off the artist in the very beginning the guy that joachim ends up being sort of forced to trade t-ray for uh t-ray picks up this carving of a clay arc that the artist made and he gets this vision that the artist put in it of the clay arcs like sort of like in their home doing like family tribal stuff which sort of starts to humanize them and then he has this moment where he's plotting the leave where he like goes outside and he's like on his own and he's like this sad outcast and he's in the countryside like plotting whether or not to escape or what he's gonna do this might even be before he gets the message from I think his name is Michael. Some characters just have normal <laughs> names. I think the character's name is Michael, the guy who works for the Pattern Master. I think even before he gets his message, he goes off and he's like in the sort of countryside. And a lone Clayarch approaches him and they have like a conversation. Where it's established that like basically part of the conflict here is that like the Clayarchs and the Patternists just don't see each other as people. Yeah. Like the Clayarch is like, he says like, you're not people. To him, but that's but then he also recognizes him as the son of the pattern master. Yeah, because you know what I think. I don't know if it's explicit, but I got this sort of idea that maybe once they infected Rael, they had a psychic connection to them. Maybe I don't. And know. I think the clay orcs have. A, do they have a psychic connection to each other? I don't know. It's unclear because the patternists can't like the mutes don't have psychic powers, but they can. Patternists can like read their minds and control them and stuff. They don't have, they can't have any sort of psychic connection to the Clayarch. So it's really unclear. Like, T-Ray talks sort of like, I think thinks about it at one point after this conflict where it's like, they really don't know much about like what's going on with the Clayarchs when they're not fighting the Patternists. Yeah. So it's like, they could have some measure of psychic power. They could, they're, there's like, even, he's like, I don't even know how sentient they are. I think what's interesting, yeah, because the way that, the patternists describe the clerics. They describe them almost like animalistic. They're, and they're actually like humanoid. Yeah. But they, they're like, because they have, they have a societal system and they have the skills to create they, weapons and they build houses and they have like a community endeavor. And then they also plan they there's like information about them planning attacks mm-hmm. and then they can speak and they can understand language but then the way the patternists describe them is he's well at one point they're described as like dogs or lions and at one point they're described as like sphinx like well they call themselves sphinxes so i guess the idea like the way i was imagining them was like 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 almost like He-Man characters. Yeah. Like they're big, bulky. I think they clearly can move on like all fours, but they're they're bipedal. They must have thumbs because they build and use guns. But yeah, they're like they're they're like beast men visually. I'm not calling them beast men as like a judgment on them. It's a really like there's 
I guess other novels must explore like what the deal with the clay arcs is because it's such a there's a couple of really strange details that really like hint at like there's obviously a deeper world here because there's all this stuff with the clay arcs at one point they make a passing reference to clay's arc which must be the ship that brought the clay arc disease back there's also when they talk about the psychics it's not quite that thing that we've joked about before on the podcast where it's like oh old sci-fi writers were just assumed people would become psychic in the future there's this very short reference to the idea that the progenitor of the patternists were like living in secret in throughout all of human history. Yeah, so that the telepathic the, abilities existed. Yeah, which I guess would be like the psychics and, and mystics that exist in like folklore. And then when the Clayark disease started this collapse of human civilization, these see clandestine psychics rose up to prominence and became the dominant species or class or whatever on earth and gave rise to this patternist society so there's this whole other thing with like secret psychics and like this war between secret psychics and like mutant people like that's just like total background information i think that makes sense because at one point Rael talks about them the clay arcs finding an old gun and fixing it so it's like almost like the clay arcs are sort of opportunistic and they scavenge which is another sci-fi thing that happens a lot these sort of scavenge societies that take the old parts of like we saw that with dan simmons where they sort of mine the old obsolete civilization that has been destroyed and i think that's what the clay arcs kind of do they're Mm -hmm. sort of like outsiders but i think you're right because whatever civilization existed no longer exists and it gave rise to what you said this which is sort of like a feudal system with the patternist and where they created this sort of class system that benefits them yeah but they acknowledge that like the mutes used to be dominant right like they refer to like our civilization human civilization as being like the old mute civilization and there's this skepticism about, like, oh, yeah, like, supposedly the mutes could build, like, spaceships and shit. And, like, they, they view that with skepticism now that they're on top and the mutes are so diminished in their position in society. Right. Yeah. But yeah, so there there's, like, this information sharing between them where he's learning more about healing and he's, like, opening up to her and confiding with her more trust. And she's confiding more trust in him. And they have to, tr- like, there is this moment where it's, like, you know, we have to trust each other and operate in tandem or we're going to die because the, the countryside is just, because Rayal is so diminished in power, the countryside is just full of these, like, roving bands of clay arcs and they have guns and they will shoot us. And so for a little bit, it becomes this kind of, like, on-the-road survival story that's also sort of this, like, it's it's interesting because it's not, I want to say budding romance, but it's, like, like you said, it is very much more like about them as equals and coming to acknowledging each other as equals and slowly building this sort of interdependence. And then that kind of like is revealed to be a romance later. It's a really, I think, a really well done take on that. It felt good. Like I'm, I'm, there's always this concern where it's like you get a cool female character, right? And then they become the love interest of the protagonist. And it's like all of a sudden, chickification is a term people use. Just like all of a sudden, all of her coolness saps away so she can become the romantic figure. And Butler does a really good job of not having that happen for either of the characters. But I think also, 
it becomes, and at some point he even like mentions this, it becomes in, in, in like a male-female relationship, traditionally the male is dominant. And yeah. He, but he becomes one, her equal, and he respects her, mm-hmm. and he knows that she's actually a stronger patternist. But then also at some point he has to relinquish control to her, and she becomes the sort of dominant patternist. Yeah, and she for a while is like almost like a mentor figure. Yeah. Like, it's for a little bit she's like the Obi-Wan of the story. Exactly. Uh, because his like kind of Luke Skywalker special boy power is that while he's not as good of he's not as skilled a healer as her, and he's not as strong as Quarancy, he can do what both of them can do. And he can do the things that the other one can do that the like he can do what Alexis, uh, what Amber can do that Quarancy can't, and he can do what Quarancy can do that she can't. Yeah. And that's what makes him ideal to become the pattern master. And there's this really great conversation he has with Rael at the end, where Rael kind of like knocks down the myth of the pattern master, where he's like, where he was like, oh, but I'm not as powerful, and they're both better. And he's like, yeah, like the job of the pattern master is not, isn't actually to be the strongest guy in the universe. Like, the job is to be the linchpin of this network that connects everyone, and like, that's what you're good at. And it's like, Rayal straight up says like, "Oh, at one, if Quarantine and I fought, he probably would have just killed me." Like that's part of why I needed you to kill him first. So they're almost near Forsyth town, yeah. and Quarantine catches up with him, and he brings with him his ten most powerful patternists slash outsiders. But they're not linked together. They, but they, yes, he will not allow them to link together, which makes them more vulnerable. They can't search as as far. They can't borrow strength from each other. And it starts to illustrate to T-Ray that, like, the danger of quarantine is not just that, like, he's a dickhead that wants to take away my freedom. It's he's a bad leader, and it's fundamental to his personality that he's a bad leader. And if he becomes the pattern master, it's not going to work out well for anyone. And there's literally no one standing between him and being the pattern master except for T-Ray. And he's there. they travel together for a while, and we get over and over as the clerics attack and people that quarantine is in control, like in charge of die as he sort of like uses the link to punish t-ray for for being aggressive by like forcing amber to link with him while she's linked with t-ray like he starts to it's just illustrates over and over again like what the danger of currency is and it makes t-ray have to like slowly approach this realization that like despite the fact that he's not ready he's going to have to fight Quarancy. And he finds out that uh, Quarancy makes this deal with him where he's like, I won't kill you here. Like, let's go to Re- to Forsyth and Rayal will, will, or one of his people will do like an evaluation on you and we'll figure out like where we stand. And then it turns out that's all bullshit and he's just taking him there to kill him. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> he eventually uh, realizes that like, yeah, there's this part where they get attacked and they get like decimated. Uh, like, where Quarancy's horse falls down and he, like, flails on the ground and everyone is, like, in chaos. And that's the part where um, Amber has her hand in a fist and gets shot through it and her hand is destroyed. And that's when she, like, psychically cannibalizes her own hand. And that's sort of the moment where he's, like... Like, basically, she realizes that that's going to be the moment where T-Ray is going to have to fight Quarancy, which means Quarancy realizes that's the moment they're going to have to fight. And then he shows up to fight him. And they have their big climactic psychic battle... Which is really, like, dramatic. Like, there's a part where 
He's inside Quarantine's mind and he's controlling his muscles and he's contracting his muscles so tightly that his leg snaps. I mean, there's just like, he's causing like intense physical pain to each other Mm -hmm. using their minds. Yeah, so like Quarantine just like lashes out and is like battering him with psychic powers uh, from behind his shield. And there's a part where, I really like the way she describes a lot of this. There's a part where... Uh, he gets overconfident and T-Ray breaks his shield and starts beating on him psychically. That's I think that's when his legs snap. And Butler describes it, or like she has T-Ray thinking about it, be like, this is like I'm a fully armored man and I'm beating up a naked guy. And then Quarancy gets the upper hand on him just through sheer force of will and strength even without his shield. And he's like, it's like the naked guy stood up and grabbed the armored man and started beating him to death. And then once he's winning, his arrogance takes over again. And T-Ray, like, this is the part where he sort of unifies the two strategies, right? So he, Quarancy drops his guard and T-Ray strikes out like Quarancy and ruptures his aorta. Mm -hmm. And then while he's distracted by the fact that his heart is fucked up, he switches to the healing style and just starts, like, blasting waves of death at Quarancy's brain until his brain totally shuts down. And then T-Ray loses consciousness and is revived by Amber. Yeah, and then it turns out that he ends up killing Quarancy. And I think in an act of sort of respect, and like I like this part a lot, like in an act of respect and sort of compassion, he decides that they're going to cremate his brother's body. Yeah, because the clerics will eat him. Like, they they eat people. Or they eat corpses. And so he's like, if we bury him here... And there's this, also this part here where he's like, because of the way that the psychics operate, the patternists operate, they've, like, lost the idea of, like, ceremony. And that's become, like, a thing that is exclusive to the mutes. And they don't have any mutes around because Quarancy wouldn't travel with them because he's fucking so arrogant. But he has sort of this... Not, it's not a confrontation, but he has this sort of interaction with the other patternist. And that's when he realizes the sort of domination that Quarancy has over them. And they're kind of even a little bit afraid to sort of make themselves vulnerable and open up their minds to be linked. Yeah, they, they can't conceive that he would want to link with them for something good and not as a punishment. Right. So he convinces them to link together so that they can fight the Clayarchs more efficiently and have a bright, bigger range and then he convinces them if they work together, they'll be safer. Yeah, and what is happening in a sense in this instance is he is building a miniature pattern. Like it's like, oh, this is what the pa- this is where we fully get illustrated to us. Like this is what the pattern is. This is why it's important. This is what it does. Like it functions like this on a grander scale. But the other thing we didn't I, we didn't mention is that like in the lead up to their big fight. Um, he tries to reach out... T-Ray reaches out into the pattern for the first time, which is not a thing you're, like, supposed to do. And he comes into contact with Rael, who tells him, like, like this was a test, right? Like, I can't... He's like, please, like, help me. Like, can you come and help me? He's gonna kill me. And he's like, look, I told you to get here on your own because, like, that was a test to see if you could do this. And if you can't do that, then I can't help you. And then at the end, once he constructs this miniature pattern... And, like, because this whole fight is happening as the clerics are sort of, like, moving in and surrounding them. That's, like, why everything sort of flares up to this tension point. But he has this conversation, that conversation with Rael, where Rael is, like, 
explains to him why he would be a good pattern master and why Corinthy couldn't be the pattern master. And like T-Ray realizes that like Rayal kind of manipulated him to take out Corinthy for him because he was a danger, but that he couldn't confront in his weakened state. Yeah. And I think also, I mean, it's kind of a dickhead move for your father and for the pattern master to say like, this is a test and you got to pass. Yeah, but I mean, like, I don't know. The stakes are pretty high. So then I, I guess that's kind of like where it's left, right? He, after they just, they cremate currency, they're going to continue on to Foresight because that's when Rayal says, come now, I want to see you. He also, like, the last line of the novel is like, you have no idea how tired I am. Yeah. Or something like that. Well, he's been, a, he's been battling the clay art disease for many years mm. because I guess he was sort of waiting for someone to come up that can challenge currency. Yeah. He wasn't quite sure if it would be his one of his other sons, but he was hoping that someone would become a rival and then he, you know, T-Ray shows up and he is very talented as a young natural patternist that he challenges his brother. So he makes a deal with Amber where they'll they'll stay together. They turned out they're expecting a child Mm -hmm. and they'll stay together, but he leaves it open-ended for her if she decides at some point she wants to leave and start her own house that he is fine with that. Well, it seems like the the established plan is like, well, you know, you'll start your own house and I'll pull the strings so he can be near me. They don't really like end up with like, ah, they're going to be husband and wife, but it's like they're they're still going to be together in some way. And I think that's really nice that it's not, it doesn't just end with like marriage. I, like think, it's, I think it's nice that he respects one, that she has her own ambitions and her own plans, but he respects the work that she does. And I think that's important because a lot of times, like especially in the seventies where it was like a big push for equal rights, a lot of times women were still considered like helpmates. And I feel like, for them to be equal and to have work that's important and valued on both ends. I mean, she's a very powerful healer. So she teaches people healing and she's very, you know, influential in that field. And I think for her to be able to continue her work and for him to respect that in the 70s, I think that's kind of like an open-minded thing. Yeah, yeah, I agree. So overall, what did you think of the book? I thought it was really good. I liked it a lot. I, I, I was really into it. I think it's like, like I said, the world is really interesting. There's lots of like, uh, you know, her take on it is very sort of like complex and nuanced. It's not just like, you know, even the clerics who we don't really, there's no like arc about like revealing their humanity, but just through like the details that she gives, they're a lot more complicated than just being like a generic threat that's just there to justify the existence of the pattern master. And they're their presence doesn't even fully justify the existence of the Pattern Master. It's still, like, this sort of hierarchical, feudal society is still, like, you come to the end of it and you're still like, ah, maybe it would be better if there just wasn't a Pattern Master, but it's all this sort of, like, complicated question, and I think it really does sort of reflect, you know, the way that power sort of works in the real world. I think there it's implied that... T-Ray and Amber will be a different kind of pattern master. Yeah. And won't be so much as a king and a queen, but more like administration. But I don't know if that's the case, because, like, Rael's speech at the end is kind of like, 
yeah, like you're, I need you to be the pattern master because you're like me and you have the same strengths as me. It's like, it's also open to that, like him becoming the pattern master really won't make much difference except for the fact that there will be less clay arc attacks. But I think he says that he says the reason why he doesn't want Clarency to be that the pattern master is because Clarency has no sense of empathy or compassion Mm. and he doesn't respect the sort of strength that the pattern can give you which is what t-ray does because Mm he unifies the pattern as to make a stronger group and keeps them safe so i think that kind of implies that there's going to be progress made but you know what i really got from this i really got this really strong like fantasy i mean it was science fiction but i really got this sort of fantasy kind of like well, it's like set in a feudal society. It's a, like the, the old king is dying, and his young, the young orphan who you know is the son, secret son of the king, has to fight his like evil yeah. brother to get this like mystic power. Like, yeah, it, it's structurally, I think, more akin to a fantasy story or even just like folklore or legend than it is to like. Biff, bam, pow, laser beam, science fiction, but it's all set in with like science fiction trappings. Yeah, no, I think it's interesting. I mean, it says a lot, like we said, about like the role of like women in society. It says a lot about class struggle, um, you know, societal and genetic hierarchies, which are kind of like an important theme. I think it's really well done because it kind of talks about a a lot of like high level sort of concepts but couches it in a way that's readable and approachable yeah i kind of it made me think a lot of like the star pit yeah i could see that it's a lot less bleak than the star yes pit. but yeah it's like a very like you know, like i've talked before about like i the way i sort of characterize like the new wave and this sort of era of science fiction as it's like the turning inward the thinking about like the mind and society and not like outward to like oh what wouldn't it be wild if there was a star with a brain in it and like that's like so i could see it's a it's a similar sort of a philosophy towards science fiction i think though a lot of times i think about science fiction fantasy melds when there's a story that's not about technology yeah especially in the 70s mm-hmm but you know what I think is interesting, and you didn't bring this up at all, but I think this story has a lot to do about free will. Well, yeah, I mean, there's that question, like, with the, uh, I think the biggest place where that comes up is the idea of the, like, controls, where it's like, those don't change what you in any way, except they keep you from doing this one thing. And then it's like this idea where it's like, even if you were going to live your life in a way where you would never do that thing, are you really free if you can't even bring yourself to attempt it? Uh, and so, like, there's, you know, like, I, I think that's an interesting idea where it's, like, you know, how much does, sort of, like, if you, t- if you take it and apply it to the real world, where it's, like, we don't have psychics putting, like, uh, fucking mental blocks in our brains, but it's, like, there are things where we're, like, programmed culturally or just biologically that we, like, can or can't do. You can't bite through your own tongue. And so it's, like, this thing where it's, like, what if I, ne- if I never wanted to bite through my own tongue, and I never do, like, but... Do I, if I physically can't do it, do I, like, really have free will? Like, and that's, like, that's kind of the idea that's sort of coming up here. Obviously, it's a lot less frivolous than, like, whether or not I can willingly maim my own tongue. But I think it's also one of the things where somebody says, don't think about elephants. Yeah. You know, it's kind of that thing. 
But I thought it was really, in- I really enjoyed it. It was the first book that I had writ- uh, read that she had written. And I really did enjoy it. Yeah, I, I would definitely recommend it. Um, Have you read any of the other books in the series? I've read the the one that's chronologically like the first one. Uh, that's about like the about the secret psychics, uh, which is really if you're, it's good. It's very strange novel, quite different from this like, in sort of tone and style, I think. Uh, but that's it. I haven't read any of the other ones. I also thought it was interesting when you talked about. That she there's actually five books in this series, but one she disavowed. I find it interesting that a writer would spend time writing a novel and having it published, and then at some point disavow it. It seems like a really harsh way of dealing with your own creativity. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, it's it is that like the only real other instance that I know of of that phenomenon is Stephen King and Rage, but that's like a moral thing, like. Like, he disavowed that and let that fall out of print after, like, you know, the the sort of prominence in the media of the sort of, like, wave of school shootings. Yeah. Whereas this one, from what I understand, she's just really disappointed at it. <laughs> so, I don't know. I, I Like, I guess that's important to respect her wishes, but I kind of would like to read it. Just because, like, I don't know. Lots of writers don't like their work yes we'll go on about stuff being bad and it's like sometimes it's it's even like their best work it's probably not her best work but i don't know i feel like the last person that should be allowed to judge whether or not their writing is good is the writer yeah i think there's just one more thing we need to talk about and like we talked a little bit about this before the podcast about afrofuturism Mm-hmm. And I guess she's not considered part of that genre, but she is a strong influence on that. Yeah, well, the these I mean, a lot of the... There's not a ton, actually, of physical description of the characters in this. But a fair amount of them are described in a way where they're clearly supposed to be sort of white or more Caucasian. Like, a lot of the, the main characters don't... Like, you don't really ever get any description of T-Ray. I was imagining him as a black man and Quarancy and Rayal as well, but... Like, I don't think that this is necessarily an Afro-futuristic work. But I think, like, the fact that she is a, a sci-fi writer who is writing, like, about the future from an African-American perspective, I could see how that would end up being influential on that movement. I think some of her other stuff is more aligned with it. Like, um, the one I was talking about, I think it's called Wild Seed. Wild Seed, yeah. That's the first one in the pattern cycle, like... The 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 psychic who ends up being the like grandfather of the patternist is like a figure that comes from Africa, uh, and he's like this sort of psychic wraith that like jumps from body to body, and he the whole novel is like he's like trying to build like a race of psychics so he's not like alone, and I could see like stuff like that, which is not which is explicitly not set in the future, but something like that that's like a more. Um, not necessarily Afrocentric, but like, you know, like a speculative fiction that is dealing more with, you know, African characters. I could see that end up being more of an influence on Afrofuturism. I, or more aligned with those sensibilities. I, I did get the sense that they, these were African American characters, but one of the things that sort of, I guess because it was the 70s, but I think this happened a few years ago also, it was very prevalent on Twitter. Some of the cover versions of the Pattern Master have characters depicted that are African American, mm-hmm. and some of them have depictions of 
characters that look like they could be white. Mm -hmm. And I think it's kind of like confusing. But remember a couple of years ago when there was this conversation about being able to pick the depiction of the artwork on the cover of sci-fi magazines and, and books and books that were written, but you know, depicted like people of color and they were depicting them as white characters and it's sort of whitewashing the sort of value of the story, which depicted sort of like, you know, different cultures and things like that. So I kind of think like part of the confusion comes from the covers that might be sort of generic and whitewashed that Mm -hmm. sort of reduce the sort of depiction of how Butler might have seen these characters, which I think causes some confusion. Yeah, I definitely think her conception, from reading this, I think her conception of this world is that it is sort of like a, a, like it's post, God, this is, it's post-racial, which is a term that feels weird to use because it's so often used to justify bullshit, but like, this is me talking about a science fiction setting. I think it's, yeah, that's true, because sort of, she doesn't give you physical description, she just says like, Teyre is a young man. And he's right out of school, and then you're left to sort of fill in the features of how you want him to look. And then Quarancy is related to him, and he's also a man. And Amber is a woman. Like that's sort of they give. She sort of gives you the generalized. Yeah, but I think depiction. like Amber's described a couple times as having like bronze skin. I think. Yeah. There's like a couple characters where we get like their like she's very sparse. Like I said, with the physical descriptions. Like I think really all we we don't get like nothing. I think from for what T Ray looks like. When we get like currency is described, I think only in relation to T. It's like he looks like T. Ray, and I think he's described as being like bigger and more muscular. I like that though, because like I said, you can depict them in the way that you want. I don't know. I like the way that she writes. I I like the the universality of the way that she writes, where it's sort of approachable for anyone who wants to read it and take like that that seems more skillful than spending three pages describing the clothes that the women are wearing. Yeah. Well, I don't know. It depends on how good you are at describing clothes. <laughs> oh, also, I thought it was, it was really refreshing reading this because uh, this is, like, totally unadaptable. Yeah, no, no. There, there, it would end up being, like, that whole, like, Professor X, like, holding your two fingers to your head and squinting really hard. Yeah, it's. I mean, it's, it's <laughs> even more so than, like, Dune has that this problem where it's, like, part of why it's hard to film is because it's, like, 80% characters staring at each other and having dueling internal monologues. Whereas, like, this is, like, quite literally, like, that is what it is. Like, the fight, I thought it was a really f- interesting uh, little detail. When the fight starts, like, T-Ray makes a conscious decision not to stand up because it would take too much energy. <laughs> so they have this big climactic fight, and he's, like, sitting on a log. <laughs> like, the whole time that this is happening. And it's, like, everything is just description. Like, I guess you could get, like, really visual and, like, actually have, like... Like, like, do, like, a JoJo's Bizarre Adventure stand battle and have, like, a CGI guy in armor fighting a naked guy to visualize the fight. But that just seems like it would be pretty silly. See, I was imagining more, like, clear, like smoke circles, like, you know, getting smaller and going, meow, 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 you know, like, that kind of, like, mental, like, yeah. laser beam kind of thing going on. Yeah, you definitely couldn't. I mean, I don't know. They might try at some point, but it seems like it would be an impossible task. This is a, this is not written with any sort of cinematic consideration, which I think is nice because so much stuff now, even if, even if like that's not the case intentionally, I feel like the language of cinema has creeped so much into 
our popular imagination our imagination across all spectrums that like a lot of people will i think even unintentionally limit themselves from putting stuff on page that it's just straight up impossible to film even if it would be really expensive it's like you know it's hard to bring yourself to something where it's like there's no way to visualize this but i don't think that's cinema i think that's also publishing because anytime a writer publishes something now it automatically has to be a series and then automatically if that series is popular it has to be optioned and it's either optioned for tv or optioned for making a movie of it Mm -hmm. you know like it's it has to be monetized in a way that makes it like worth the effort of publishing it by a big publishing house which i think is a disservice because you get a lot of like series that probably don't need to be series or mm-hmm. that things that keep going on and on and on and where they should probably end them at some point or you have a series expectation like game of thrones where you're not even sure you're ever going to get the ending everybody is series. too pessimistic about that he's gonna finish it he's fine he's not that old Yes, I know, but what I'm worried about is I may be too old to read a 750 page. You can listen to the audiobook. But do they have that? Do they have any more Shakespearean actors that can do it? I mean, I'm sure there's someone who is even who is on the show who hasn't read an audiobook yet. Because the original three audiobooks, the narrator passed away. Oh, so I mean, is Charles Nance going to still be around, and is he going to be able to do it? I mean. Yeah, well, by by the time it comes out, who, the, the kid who played Rickon will be <laughs> an adult, and he can do it. Is he British enough? I have no idea. I don't know anything about him. He's, he doesn't, like, say anything in the show. <laughs> It'll be narrated by the guy who does the voice of the wolf. Yeah. Uh, all right, so do we have anything else to say? I don't think so. Just, I mean, read it. It's good. It doesn't yeah. take too long to read. It's very interesting, and... Check out Kindred. Kindred's like all time great. It's too long for us to cover on this podcast, which is part of why we did this instead. Uh, but yeah, I de- definitely check this out if you're at all into this sort of thing. I just want to make a recommendation if you're interested in Afrofuturism, I would highly recommend that you read N.K. Jemison's fifth season, the, mm. the trilogy that she won the Hugo Awards for. I think that's a great sort of legacy for Octavia Butler because it really, her style of writing is similar and I think that they're kind of both, they deal with the same kind of themes, gender and societal roles and hierarchy and I think it's kind of, I mean her books are really well written and I think everyone will enjoy them. Yeah, for sure. Uh, So the next thing we're going to do is uh, for our comic episode this month, we're going to cover... Clue Candlestick by Dash Shaw, uh, which, yes, it is a an adaptation of the board game, uh, but I think it's going to be really interesting. Why to talk not? About. I mean, are we going to talk about the movie? We can talk about the movie. This is not like, this is its own thing entirely. It doesn't really have anything to do with the movie. It's just another take on like how do you bring a story out of this board game, but it engages a lot with the idea that it is a game. Do they call it Cluedo in... Well, England, then, like the game? I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> I'll check and see if it was published as Cluedo Candlestick <laughs> in England. Uh, but yeah, that's going to be our next episode. And then tune in for that and we'll announce the, the next novella and the next comic. Uh, after Clue, we're going to do one more one-shot of comics and then we'll move on to our new series. So, 
Stay tuned for the next three episodes if you're interested in finding out what that is. Exactly. Uh, spo- Watch out for the clay arcs. Yes. Stay linked up. Uh, but all, but also stay six feet away from each other. <laughs> Unless, I don't know. This is coming out in February and we're recording it in December. So who knows what what's going to be going on in the world. We by might then. all be telepathic by then. Mm-hmm. Spoiler alert. Stay tuned. Bye, everyone. Bye.